Please join me in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for the fact that we can come together. We can come together as worshipers. Uh, We can sing these songs of commitment and assurance. Uh, We thank you that uh, as a church, we can look to you for every blessing and help that we need. Uh, We want to pray this morning for your word as it goes forth around the world. Uh, We especially want to pray for uh, your servants that are ministering in Turkey and in Syria in this very difficult time. And we ask that you would give them encouragement and strength and help. Uh, We pray that uh, you will guide in the affairs of our country that you will direct our president, the members of Congress, the officials of state, and each one that has a responsibility that comes from you. Uh, we pray now for this service and that uh, you will guide and direct Steve in his thoughts and that uh, you will give us a message that will encourage our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Paul. and. Thank you, dear friends, for your kind invitation to be with you in worship this morning. Arlene and I have thoroughly enjoyed our time with you already, and we thank God for his powerful hand on this congregation. It's just a a delight. We've known Paul and Pat for, I think, about 24 years now, and in recent months have been watching for an opportunity to come and to enjoy fellowship with you, so it's good that this has finally been realized. So, friends, uh, let me ask you a question as we approach God's Word together this morning. How many of us like surprises? Okay, I see five or six hands here. (laughs) And I'm sure what's going through quite a few people's minds is, now wait a minute, Steve, I need a little more information. What kind of surprise are we talking about? Is it the kind that you had when you were a child? in your room there in the jungle, and you were awakened to an eight-foot python in your bedroom. (laughs) Surely not. We uh, generally, especially in our our culture here in the West, we don't particularly like surprises, do we? We like to anticipate just about everything. We we like to anticipate exactly when we're going to arrive. Uh, We like to anticipate when it's going to rain. Uh, we like to anticipate any health issue. In fact, there's very little in our lives um, that we don't try to control or anticipate. And when we are surprised, uh, we're often disappointed <laughs> to have been surprised. And yet, life is full of surprises as much as we try to control everything, if you think about it. And the Bible is too. Now, <clears throat> Let me just mention a few. The flood came as a surprise to everyone but Noah's family. Uh, The surprise of Joseph, the youngest of the brothers, and the slave becoming the prime minister of Egypt. I mean, can you get any more surprising than that? David, the least likely brother, the carer of the sheep, ends up becoming the king of Israel. God's anointed Esther becomes the queen of the Persian Empire. And then you fast forward to the New Testament and you think about Jesus 
And there's hardly a thing that Jesus said or did that didn't come as a surprise to everyone. He spoke with authority like they had never heard. He told the kinds of stories that they had never heard before. He illuminated God's word and the law in ways that no one had imagined. And even Nicodemus uh, was surprised at the idea of new birth and what Jesus was unpacking. And so his birth and his death and his resurrection, and I suspect his second coming is going to be a big surprise to a lot of people. So uh, we actually learn more about ourselves and about God from unplanned events of our lives and from the unexpected than we do from the, the pre-programmed. Now, if you Google uh, how many names are there for God in the Bible, one of the answers is there are 950 <laughs> uh, names for God. And you look up that list, it's just amazing. It's a very inspiring list. But let me add another name to that list. God the Surpriser. And I'm learning to worship God as the God who surprises. And I'm thinking in my own heart and life about developing a new line of theological inquiry called surpriseology. (laughs) And praying a prayer that at first seems scary, but over time you start realizing this opens the door to uh, wonderful works of God in our lives, and that is the prayer, Lord, surprise me with your superior plan. Lord, surprise me with your superior plan. So turn with me, please, to the power-packed little book of Jonah. If it helps, Jonah is between Obadiah and Micah. (laughs) And uh, this is very familiar territory for all of you, for all of us as believers. But, you know, as as we approach the scriptures in in our quiet times or in our times of study as a fellowship of believers... One helpful way to approach the scriptures is, what is surprising in this passage? Or another question we can ask is, what should be surprising to me in this passage? Because perhaps, you know, over time we become rather accustomed uh, to uh, so many aspects of scripture. But if, if you really think about it, there's not a page of scripture that isn't packed with surprises. God is the master of surpriser. So here we have, and we're just going to touch on one, uh, on four of many surprises that we could identify in this one short little book. So chapter one, verse one, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But, but Jonah ran away from the Lord. He headed in the other direction for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to do what? To flee from the Lord. All right, so we encounter surprise number one, the mission that God had for his servant, for the prophet Jonah, was bigger and more radical than Jonah appreciated or desired. God had a bigger and more radical plan than what fit into the framework of Jonah's radius of expectations. Nineveh was the ultimate pagan capital, both in reality 
in that era of history and also in terms of its symbolism, founded by Nimrod, the uh, great-grandson or great-great-grandson of Noah, uh, a symbol of rebellion and of tyranny, the same man who, is, who had built Babel, and uh, we understand uh, part of his endeavors involved the Tower of Babel, Symbol of rebellion, tyranny, about 500 miles away, and I'm sure Jonah took that into account as well. This was a great city. It was a, it was a city of uh, approximately 600,000 people, which maybe in our time doesn't sound like that many, but certainly in that time was a tremendously large city. Prior to its fall, Nineveh was the largest urban center in the, in the known world, certainly in, in that part of the world, ornamented by gardens, hanging gardens, statuaries, parks, and a zoo, and was regarded as a great cultural center. But the Assyrian Empire, as we know, was also known for its brutality and for torture and for burning people alive and striking fear into the hearts of the nations around them and the nations that they sought to conquer. And just a few decades later, 30 or 40 years later, perhaps, as Jonah may have known, Assyria would be God's instrument to take into captivity, uh, to conquer and to take into captivity many from the northern kingdom. Okay, so this mission was not one that Jonah thought, that makes total sense. I'll pack my bags and I'll be on my way. God's call and mission rocked Jonah's world and he wasn't too happy about it because I think Jonah ascertained, why would God want to send me on a mission to warn the Assyrians of God's impending judgment. Why bother warning them? Why not just do it? Because it's quite likely that God tends to have mercy upon them and to give them more time should they repent. And Jonah very likely was not thinking that it was uh, their right or their uh, legitimate opportunity to have more time and to be spared God's judgment. So he went down and he fled and he opposed, verses 1 and 2. God is in the business, brothers and sisters, and this might be the first reminder to us as we look at a surprise in the life story of this prophet, that he's in the business of disturbing our equilibrium and calling us out of our comfort zones into a world that is in need of God's love and his marvelous mercy of which we've been singing and concerning which we have been reflecting in our time earlier this morning. So your life and mine, every one of us, is part of a larger plan. Now Jonah had already been prophesying and ministering within his own cultural context there in Israel, and he may have thought, Lord, you've already given me a challenging enough task here with the obstinate people of Israel must I now go to the capital of the Assyrian Empire and risk my life in preaching to them as well? But God's plan for him was bigger than he had appreciated at that time. Now, there are various ways. I think of macro applications to this as well as micro applications. And let me give you an example of uh, a macro application has to do with the big picture mission of God in the world around us and that God is calling us to the Ninevehs of our world today as well. And of course, 
by virtue of the unfolding narrative and revelation of the, the gospel message in subsequent eras of history and in the new pages of the New Testament, we have an understanding of the uh, applicability and the need for the gospel message, the, mercy, the, the, the message of God's grace and mercy to go to all the Ninevehs of the world back in 1962. I made my first overseas mission trip. I was just six six months old at the time. Uh, so I didn't go voluntarily. I was a bit maybe like Jonah, kicking and screaming as my parents got on a ship. <laughs> and we traveled from Vancouver, Canada, via Hawaii and New Zealand and Australia and ended up in the highlands of New Guinea. And the missionary said to my parents, Don and Carol, we've just heard about this tribe down in the southern swamps. We don't know much about them. They live in tree houses 40 or 50 feet off the surface of the swamp. Would you be happy to go down there? It's really hot. It's not cool like it is up here in the highlands. There are malarial mosquitoes, and we don't know much about the people, so you'll have to be taking your lives in your hands. And mom and dad glanced at each other. I like to think that they glanced at me too. I was seven months old by that time. And they said, yes, that's what God has called us to do. Dad was uh, the first to go in with the help of another missionary from Florida, who had recently established a beachhead for the gospel in a neighboring tribe, made the first contact with some Sawi warriors that they encountered there at the junction of two rivers. This was the first time that these warriors had seen anybody with light-colored skin and uh, got their help to build a little house about the size of the stage up here, about 20 feet by 20 feet, and using sign language. My father tried to communicate to these Sawi warriors uh, in about 10 days' time, I'm coming back with my wife and my little baby, and we want to live among you. We want to learn your language. Would you move out of the jungle around the house here so that we can be close to you? And he wasn't sure if they understood. But 10 days later, uh, the three of us paddled by some very courageous men from a neighboring tribe that had been at war with the Sawi. They were from the Kaigar tribe, been at war with the Sawi for who knows how many generations. Took their lives in their hands to escort us in, up one river, across through the swamps, down the Kronkel River. We rounded the last bend as the sun was setting, and there were 400 Sawi warriors waiting to welcome us. Armed to the teeth, <laughs> with the bones through their noses and the headdresses and the spears in their hands and the bows and arrows, and some of them were holding drums. And my father reached back and whispered to my mother, it's too late now, we're committed. <laughs> Picked me up out of my mother's arms, not knowing that in the Sawi culture, if uh, a man that they encountered by surprise came with no weapons in his hands and was carrying as a baby was a sign that he was coming in peace. And they made their way slipping and sliding up through the mud as the canoe slid to a stop into this throng of warriors. There were no women and children to be seen because they were hiding in the jung behind the jungle walls waiting to see what was going to happen. And they realized everything was going to be okay. One of the chiefs shouted, Asa, and those long drums started to boom, boom, boom. And this throng began to dance around us. Later, my father described it as if the three of us were at the eye of a human hurricane. And they swept us up to the little notched pole that led up into this thatched-roofed home. And that throng danced around us for three days and three nights. 
without stopping. They were baptizing us into their culture, the world of the Sawi. And that's where I grew up, speaking Sawi probably better than English because only mom and dad spoke English. All my friends spoke Sawi. And as, as dad and mom began learning, unpacking the, the Sawi uh, language and culture, dad learned the language. Well, we, we discovered, first of all, that they were both cannibals and headhunters. And not too many tribes actually both practiced both customs. Uh, the Sawi lived in tree houses 40 or 50 feet off the surface of the swamp, partly because there's fewer mosquitoes up there, partly because there was so much rain, you got to stay out of the water, but mostly because the Sawi were always at war with each other. It was man against man. It was one clan against the next clan. It was one village against the other villages, 18 villages in the Sawi tribe. And it was the Sawi against the Kaigar and the Aoyu and the Atohaim and the Asmat. And the safest place to sleep at night was up in the trees because you could feel the tree shaking if the enemy tried to ambush you by surprise. But maybe most shocking of all, some of you who are familiar with the Peace Child story, as Dad learned the language well enough to begin explaining the gospel message to the men in the man house, there was a certain house where the Sawi warriors would gather from time to time and have a feast and plan the next raid or the next hunting party. He came to the part of the account where Jesus was betrayed by, to death by one of his friends, Judas. And there was a ripple of laughter in, through the smoke and over the beetle grubs that they were eating. And one of the men behind said, Tuandan, tell us more about Judas. And my father said, you mean Jesus? They said, no, Judas, he sounds like one of us. And dad said, what do you mean? He said, didn't you just say he betrayed his friend to death? We do that all the time. In fact, we have stories. And within our living memories, we can remember several occasions where we have befriended someone from another village or another group and told them we wanted to make peace and earn their trust over a period of time only to eventually kill them. And we call that tuyasalaiman, which in the Sawi language means to do with a man as you would do with a pig. Feed the pig when it's small and let it grow up for the day of reckoning. Dad realized he had a cross-cultural communication problem on his hands, the likes of which he hadn't been particularly prepared for in Bible school. In the meantime, these four Sawi villages had moved in around us, and they loved being close to us and all the exotic things that they were learning and observing. But they didn't like being close to each other because they had been enemies for who knows how long. And all these battles began to break out. And in the first few weeks, my mother counted 14 major battles fought in our front yard. It was the only cleared area that they had to fight in. And finally, my father said to the Sawi warriors from the village of Kamor over here, he said, we've come to bring a message of peace, but you're not listening. He said, because of our presence here, many people are being injured if not killed. And dad was weary of going out and trying to break bows and arrows and trying to restore peace. And he said, if you can't make peace, then my wife and I are going to have to move to some other group that wants to hear the message that we've come to bring. But he wondered to himself, how does a treachery idealizing culture convince their enemies that they're actually serious about making peace if they say we want to make peace? Well, the next morning, dad was studying a few more vocabulary words in the Sawi language. I remember that office that he did his, his study and his New Testament translation in, just a little thatched roofed house. 
He heard a terrible cry, and he thought, oh, no, here goes another battle, and I'm going to have to go out and risk my life again. But he rushed out to see a very different sight, a father having grabbed his little baby boy from the arms of his wife, the child's mother. She had thrown herself in the mud and was weeping. No, not us, not our little boy. We only have one. Let somebody else do this. And he ran with that little baby over the logs and through the mud over to the enemy village of Hainam and gave his little baby to the enemy. And dad turned to Adi and said, Adi, what's happening? And Adi said, well, you've been telling us we have to make peace. We're making peace. This man has given his newborn son to the enemy as a peace child, a tarop team. Dad said, what are they going to do with that little boy? Are they going to hurt him? And he said, no, because the peace will only last as long as he lives. If he falls out of a treehouse and dies in the thorns below, if he gets bit by a death adder and dies half an hour later from the poison, if he falls out of a canoe into the river and gets eaten by a crocodile, then warfare can resume without notice at any time because the peace hinges on his life. Dad went back in. Mom had been watching this whole scene. Dad explained what Adi had said to him and said, you wouldn't believe it, Carol. They've just given a child that they call a peace child to the enemy. This is the strangest thing I've ever heard. And Mom paused and said, strange indeed, but strangely familiar too. And Dad realized, yes, the correlation with the message that we've come to bring. And he took another week or two and explored a few more vocabulary words, this concept of the peace child, went back into that same warrior house, started in on the same story, and this time he added another detail. He mentioned that Jesus was Mialkodon's Tarop team, God's peace child. This time there wasn't a ripple of laughter. This time nobody said, tell us more about Judas. I'd love to promise my daughter in marriage to a man like Judas. This time they said, wait a minute. Are you saying that Jesus was a peace child, Mialkodon's Tarop team? And dad said, yes. He said, why didn't you tell us that the first time? Dad said, I didn't realize it would make any difference. Make a difference. It makes all the difference in the world, Mahayim said. He said, to betray a peace child is the worst thing that anybody can do. It was like you could see the scales, the spiritual scales falling from the eyes of this warrior in that smoky manhouse. And one of the first men to come to my father, almost like Nicodemus perhaps coming to Jesus, was a man named Hatho. He only had one eye left and he gazed into my father's eyes. And he said, Tuan Don, you've been, your words have made my liver quiver. <laughs> In the Sawi culture, they didn't talk about the heart, they talked about the liver. And he said, I just can't get over these words that you're sharing, that my creator has actually paid the ultimate price and, price and given us his son in order to reestablish a relationship with me and with our people. And that on the basis of the ultimate peace child, we can be reconciled. But we saw we, when we give a peace child, the receiving village, the warriors gather, and one by one they lay their hands on that child, and one by one they say, I accept this baby as a basis for peace between our people and the enemy. And I want to do that with God's son, Jesus. Could you tell him for me? And my dad had the incredible privilege of saying to Hato, Hato, I don't need to tell him for you. You can express your own liver to him in prayer by faith and tell the risen peace child who was betrayed by mankind 
but rose again from the dead by the power of God, that you are personally embracing him as your atonement. And Hato said, I want to do that, and my four wives do too, (laughs) and our whole family. And so my dad said, bring your whole family. And Hato and his family, I remember them, clearly from my childhood, became the first fruits of an amazing outpouring of the power of God among the Sawi people. I had the privilege of a front row seat to the truth of Romans 1.16, that the gospel is the power of God for for the salvation of those who believe. First for the Jewish people 2,000 years ago, and today for all the nations of the world. So that would be an example to me of a macro application of the Ninevehs of our time and of the last number of decades. It's amazing to me to think that of the 1,500 or so languages spoken on the island of New Guinea and the surrounding islands there, about a fifth of the world's languages, At the time mom and dad carried me in there, about 60 years ago, many of them still had not received the gospel message. Today, I can't think of a single one that hasn't received at least the beginnings of the unfolding of the message of the gospel among them. We live in an amazing era of God's unfolding redemptive plan. But there are also micro-applications In addition to missions, perhaps God is calling you into the uncomfortable terrain of health issues on a personal level or family issues or people with mental illness and other related challenges or financial setbacks that have dismayed and perhaps surprised you or loved ones who have gone astray. And whether it's on a macro level or on a micro level of God taking us out of our comfort zones and saying, I have an assignment for you. We have the opportunity and the privilege of saying, Lord, I trust you and I will step out and I will take on the assignment that you have given me because I know that you are trustworthy. I know you have a bigger plan. And though I don't understand it fully at this time, I'm willing to be part of that equation. Surprise number two, if the first one had to do with the mission that God was calling Jonah to, for me personally, a second surprise is the messenger himself. Jonah was God's unlikely instrument to give a whole empire a period of mercy and reprieve in the historical scheme of the big picture. His God's unlikely instrument to save an empire. Now, who was this Jonah? Jonah was an obscure person. We actually don't know a whole lot about him. We know when he served during the the time of King Jeroboam II. He was the son of Amittai. I'm not sure that helps us a whole lot. He was from a small town called Gath-Hefer, a few miles north of what would become known as Nazareth. Jonah, as I mentioned, already had a job, and he had no interest in doing this one. In fact, he disagreed. Now, often we think in terms of volunteering for God's work. Do we have any volunteers to join the harvest? But frankly, God doesn't limit himself to willing <laughs> willing emissaries. I'm sure he takes great delight 
in our cooperation and obedience, but he doesn't limit himself to that. And God has often in history used reluctant servants to accomplish his purposes. He has a huge cast of unlikely characters in his divine drama, Moses, the reluctant leader. Please, send my brother Aaron. (laughs) Please, not me. (laughs) Jeremiah, Peter, the betrayer. I'm so glad God didn't give up on Peter. We even have that expression, petering out, don't peter out, right? Imagine having that as your legacy. Thomas the doubter, who tradition tells us went as far as India in his proclamation of the gospel. Saul the persecutor. I mean, that one probably took the cake. But even Jesus, does any good thing out of, come out of Galilee? So God is in the business of using unlikely candidates. My, my father, I've, I've just mentioned the story of mom and dad. I haven't told mom's side of that story. But my father was born on Prince Edward Island in eastern Canada. Anne of Green Gables country, if you're familiar with Anne of Green Gables. And uh, grew up on a farm. And I, I, I just can imagine the creativity and the humor of God as he said, see that little boy on that farm there in Prince Edward Island? I'm going to take that boy. And when he's 17, I'm going to draw him to myself through a Youth for Christ message in a theater, not here in Prince Edward Island, but over on Vancouver Island on the opposite side of Canada. And then I'm going to match him up with a young lady from Oklahoma, from the plains of Oklahoma, and I'm going to send them to an isolated tribe out in the southern swamps of New Guinea, and I'm going to take the story that I'm going to write through them there, and I'm going to make it a blessing to peoples all around the world. Now, that's God-sized creativity and imagination. I remember as a boy growing up there on the field that I was so surprised when a young missionary arrived to join the ranks of the many other missionaries who had already preceded her to these wild places, the mountains and swamps of New Guinea, 1,500 miles long, the world's second largest island, with some peaks that reached as high as 16,000 feet, with glaciers on them on the equator. And this lady uh, had braces on her legs And she was small, and she had had polio when she was just a little girl. When an itinerant Chinese evangelist visited her country church near Spokane, Washington, when she was a little girl, she responded on the final night of that conference. Eleanor was her name, Eleanor Young. And she hobbled up to the front saying, I'm willing to give my life for missionary service. And afterward, one of the leaders in the church went up to the Chinese preacher and said, I'm so sorry, there's only been one who responded, and she has polio, so she has delusions of grandeur. But this Eleanor Young grew up. She was in one of those metal machines, metal lung machines back in the day, and ended up out there in New Guinea, and guess where she was assigned to go? to 13,000-foot-high mountains to a tribe of people called the Kimyal, K-I-M-Y-A-L. And I was watching all this as a young man. And she translated, started translating the scriptures into their language. And you know, the Kimyal, she was one of the first missionaries to go in there, rugged mountains. They were almost pygmy-type people. They were, they were about as small as you can get without being categorized as kind of in that technical category of really small People And they looked at Eleanor and she said, she's small like us. 
And they said, look, she has bad legs. We have some people with bad legs too. And so they called her bad legs. And they said, look, someone with bad legs has come with a wonderful message. And they would carry her around as she learned the language and carried her like a, like a queen on a litter on, 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 on two poles over the mountains from village to village. And Eleanor Young, bad legs, ended up having the privilege of becoming the bearer of good news and the hero of the whole Kimyal tribe. And she went back decades later after having spent much time there for the dedication of the entire Bible. And it's just a wonderful video that you can look up on YouTube if you Google uh, Kimyal Bible Celebration, Eleanor Young. And she's written a book called Running on Broken Legs. And just a marvelous story of how God took a little girl with polio and made her the emissary of the gospel for people in a place where most people would fear to tread. And so guess what happens when these things happen? When Jonah does eventually go to Nineveh, and Eleanor Young goes out there, and my dad and mom go to the Sawi, and Arlene's parents, her father was the national sales manager for the Wall Street Journal, and since God's call to having been very effective in evangelizing and sharing the gospel with his co-workers at Dow Jones and with the Wall Street Journal, stepped out in faith, not knowing what the future would hold, and started a little ministry in their own home there in Northern Virginia near Dulles Airport that eventually grew into what we know of as pioneers today with uh, over 300 teams serving in more than 100 countries around the world. And that was just 44 years ago. So praise God. Surprise number three. And this won't be a surprise for you. But surprise number three is that the sailors, the response, the world was prepared for the message. The sailors, you'll notice, in chapter 1, verse 8 and following, they asked discerning questions. Basically, who's responsible for this storm? Why is this happening? And then they asked Jonah, what is your occupation? What is your origin? What is your ethnic identity? Tell us about your religion. Who is your God? And then finally they say, what should we do? And we see here the way that God had prepared those people to ask the right questions. They did their best to spare his life, threw everything overboard, and they didn't want to do it. Then they cried out to God and they obeyed. And it says they greatly feared as the sea was calmed. And they made sacrifices and vows. And so we see here, going forward even further, the Ninevites, this is to me one of the most astonishing statements in the scriptures, and that is the Ninevites believed God. Now that is an amazing, amazing statement. Jesus said later, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment and this great, and this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, Matthew 12, 41. And then we see so often in the book of Acts, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. And we see the centurions who have faith like no one in Israel and so many examples in the scriptures of the receptivity of people who are outside the congregation that had been privileged to receive God's special revelation up until that point. And so this whole idea of the response and the world prepared for the message has been... Hope giving for me 
And so often we think, oh, those people are unresponsive. It's going to be so hard. But all around the world, so many amazing open doors have opened. In the Asma tribe next door, they had a new birth ceremony. It was their way, way of making peace. And little children would go over the backs and between the legs of a chain of men and women. And, and as they came out the other side, they would be rocked like little babies. And it was their new birth ceremony. Does that remind you of anything? The Yali tribe up in the highlands had a, had a custom where they had circles of stone. And if someone was fleeing from his enemies and was able to make it into one of those circles of stone, they called them places of refuge. He could turn around and bare his chest and the enemies would lower their weapons and walk away because he had reached the place of refuge. Does that sound familiar to you? God has prepared the people of the world. And you know, the Ninevites, they say, worshiped a fish god among their other gods. And this fish god, uh, Oannes, does that sound a little bit like Jonas? And here came a guy with an amazing story. And they had, they had this concept of, of the gods appearing like avatars from time to time and leading their people into a new era. And it's possible, who knows, that as Jonah came with his story and his scars and preached that they said this has to be the truth, this has to be a message from God. Okay, finally, the fourth surprise, and again, these are only a few of what we could be touching on, is the challenge. And in the closing verses of this little book of Jonah, we see the fourth surprise, that the bigger hurdle wasn't for God, Nineveh. What was the bigger hurdle? It was Jonah's own heart. Have you any right to be angry? Chapter 4, verse 4. You see, Jonah still had heart issues, even after all he'd been through. And so God provided a worm. And often we don't like the worm, but sometimes the worm is provided by God. And he provided the storm earlier, and he had provided the great fish. And the book says he provided the vine, and he provided the east wind. And ultimately, should I not be concerned with that great city? So God persistently works within us, and it's a lifelong process. This, too, is encouraging to me, that God is on a lifelong process of changing my heart and aligning it to be more like his. So God is the hero of the whole story of Jonah and his book, his unstoppable love both for Jonah and for Nineveh. And Jonah is a microcosm of Israel's failure to be a blessing and to fulfill their purpose as a kingdom of priests. It exposes the danger of missionless disciples who are preoccupied with our own needs and our own plans. Well, Jonah fled down to Joppa. You fast forward to the New Testament, and another man is in Joppa. His name is Peter, and he has a vision. And then after the vision is done and he's thinking about it, a delegation arrives from a gentleman named Cornelius, and you know the story well. It's like there's a second Jonah, and this this second Jonah, Peter goes and he fulfills, and it opens up the era of global evangelism to the whole world, of which you and I are a part today. Our lives are part of a much bigger picture, and maybe God is calling you out of your gath heifer. Now you say, well, I'm already in my 60s. There's no new things for me, but maybe God is going to give you something new. Maybe he'll take you into a new challenge, and you will have the opportunity to trust him in that new challenge.
God always has more for us. So as we join God in his purposes, we'll be amazed by his radical love, his astonishing power to use us. We'll be surprised by how he prepares people for the message and how much our own hearts need to change in the process. Let me pray in conclusion here. Heavenly Father, it's just a joy to revisit familiar passages of your holy word. And in particular this morning, that just that story of this prophet from whom we have so much to learn through his difficult journey. And Lord, we pray that you will surprise us with your superior plan. Humble us, use us, glorify the name of Jesus, we pray. In his wonderful and worthy name, amen. Thank you, brothers and sisters. It's been a joy to be with you today.